beginning in verse 3. Listen to this prophecy recorded by the prophet Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places be plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says the city. Say, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts are in awe as we reflect on the words of Isaiah the prophet from generations and generations ago. Speaking of a time, O oh God, when you would send a great shepherd to gather up your sheep. To not just gather them to be distant, but to gather them and come close to them. To have relationship with them, to know them. To love them, to care for them, to call them your very own, to lead them, to guide them, and ultimately to give your own life for them. We stand in awe, O oh God, of your, of your sovereignty over all history. For you've had a plan since, there, since before there was anything such as time. And in your perfect timing, you sent your only begotten Son to be that great shepherd. To give his very own life on a cross that we might live. And even now, doing just as the prophecy told us. Gathering out sheep for himself. From out of the world. Calling men, calling women. To himself. That they might place their faith and trust in him. And by his very own shed blood. Find forgiveness of sin. And eternal life. And Lord, many in this place count themselves among your sheep because we've heard your voice call. We've understood the meaning of the cross and the bloodshed there on our behalf. And we've placed our faith in you. And we rejoice in that this morning. Above all things, we rejoice in that our eternal salvation bought by our great shepherd. And yet we trust, Lord, that there might be some this morning who who don't know you, who have not heard your voice call to them. And we pray this morning that they would hear loud and clear you calling their name. And yet even as we think about prophecy that's been fulfilled, Lord, we, we know that that's not all there is, that you've called us to live holy and godly lives because you've told us that there's a time, Lord Jesus, when you will return again. And this time not as a gentle shepherd to gather your sheep, but this time as the reigning Lord of history. To make all things right once again. And so we long for that day and we look for that day, Lord. But in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to live godly and holy lives before you. And even this morning, our gathered worship is a part of that process that you're playing out in our lives. For you've called us to this place today. And you've called us here because you desire to meet with us. You desire to, to meet us here as we worship you. You desire to meet us as we encounter you in your word. And so we pray that you would do your work in us today. Teach us from your word. Challenge us from your word. Call us to yourself in deeper and personal ways this morning. Expose areas of our life that need attention. Lord, we pray for our pastor this morning as he opens up the word to teach. That you would inspire him by your Holy Spirit. That you would speak your words through him. 
and that we might receive them well. And Lord, as we wrap up our, our final week of prayer for missions this week, Lord, we are mindful of those who are serving all over the globe and within our own country. In places, Lord, having given up everything to serve you, having left their homes, most of their possessions, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who haven't heard. We pray your grace and your blessings upon them this morning. Empower them to do their ministry well. Bring, bring them, Lord, bountiful results. That through their work and through their ministry, many might come to know you. Encourage them, build them up this morning, even as we worship you here. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 10. God willing, finish up this chapter um, today. I find it interesting that the one who came to preach reconciliation between God and man, bring to bring reconciliation between God and man, to, to preach peace on earth, goodwill toward men, caused so much trouble. Cause so much strife. Um, but that's what truth does. Uh, don't ever be surprised when, because of your stand on truth, there's strife comes to your life. Um, human nature never changes. As long as there's no grace in the heart of man, uh, you can expect Hatred for the gospel. It's always the case. Oil and water don't mix. Unconverted people and the people of God don't mix in a certain sense. Paul tells us about that in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We'll see that today in this text. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We'll see that in this text in John 10 today. So don't think it's strange when strife comes your way. J.C. Ryle talking about this, says he will often find his ways, talking about the believer, will often find his ways and opinions in religion. And when Ryle says religion, he's talking about Christianity, the cause of strife in his own family. He will have to endure ridicule, harsh words, petty persecution from the children of the world. He may even discover that he's thought of a fool or a madman on account of his Christianity. Let none of these things move him the thought that he is a partaker of the afflictions of Christ ought to strengthen him in every trial or against every trial. And so we see that um, at the really at the end of one section before we begin another section in verse 19 of chapter 10, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. That's the, the, the cause of the division, the words of Jesus Christ. Pastor Greg took us through the Good Shepherd discourse. There's those words that caused more division. How many times have we seen that? Jesus says something and there's division. It can happen to us too. My, a part of my life passage is 2 Corinthians 2. Verses 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? 
So the cause of the division of the words that Jesus has just spoken to them, the content of the division is that they're two different groups. First, there's a group in verse 20. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? That's the majority opinion. Those are the ones who thought Jesus was just nuts. And then there are those that actually thought he may be from God. Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, they're going back to the previous chapter. And Jesus made the blind man see some period of time. And, you know, included in that minority opinion could be people like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Gamaliel. People will see in the days ahead. What is it that causes men to divide is so very clear. Paul explains that to us in Romans 1.25, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's what's happened. What causes them to exchange the truth of God for for a lie? Well, Jesus answered that back in chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the question is, can you really see? That's our question today. And that's not even the text. Up to this point, following the healing of the blind man, um, there's really been no mention of the crowd, the audience growing. Uh, But I imagine after Jesus' description of himself as the good shepherd coming from God, that in the first part of chapter 10, that, 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 that the anger has ratcheted up a little bit and the division among the Jewish leaders has ratcheted up some. You see, it's the words that cause division. That's why they want to ignore the miracles. That's why they want to ignore his, his works. And so we get to our text today, the rest of the chapter, beginning at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then they go ballistic. They start picking up rocks. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for the good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not going, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him. Oh, I hope that would be the case today. That the things that 
we stand here today and say about him is true. And you, you find that out and you believe. So he's at another festival, the Feast of Dedication there in verse 22. He'd been at the Feast of Booths um, about two months ago. Um, not two months ago in our preaching. Well, maybe two months. No, longer than that. But back in chapter 7. Well, we don't need that scripture. That print's way too small. Um, during that time, there was the healing of the blind man. More encounters with the Pharisees. That good shepherd discourse. And John tells us now it's winter. See at the end of the verse, it was winter. And I think it's appropriate that we look at uh, this uh, particular feast for just a second because it's really interesting to me. I could spend the whole time talking about it, um, but I won't because it's not as significant as the rest of the past passage. But here we are in December and we're talking about the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Because it's a non-Mosaic feast. This feast celebrates something that took place during the intertestamental period. And you read it in the first Maccabees verse uh, chapter 4. It celebrates a rededication of the temple. Briefly, the story is 167, roughly 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian, has come into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and created new laws and new rules regarding uh, the temple in Jerusalem and, um, and almost destroyed it. And they were, they, were, they were allowed to sacrifice pigs on the altar of the temple um, during his brief uh, rule there. And... <clears throat> Around 166, we don't know the exact dates, um, uh, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, or Judah Maccabee, uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, led a revolt to overcome Antiochus Epiphanes, and he led the revolt, and then when, and it was successful, and then in 165, the temple was rededicated. And so the Feast of Dedication um, uh, celebrates the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus back in 165 B.C. And the reason I think it's significant now is because the Feast of Dedication is what we call today Hanukkah. And it begins December 16th this year and ends on Christmas Eve. Uh, Not only that, you're familiar with the menorah. Well, um, they found only one day of pure temple oil in the temple when the Jews went back into the temple in 165. And that one day of pure temple oil lasted eight days. Hence, an eight-candle menorah that the Jews today celebrate during Hanukkah. And you say, oh, well, my menorah that I bought in Israel has nine candles. Well, one of those candles is just to stay lit to light all the others. So it's, that's why. So there's the story, and there's a lot more to it, and it's a lot, it's very, very interesting. You should read, Google it. You should read about it. That would be great. This historical fact of the Feast of Dedication, too, may have some significance in verse 36, when Jesus says, Do you say of him talking about God, whom uh, no, talking about himself, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? There may be some connection of that consecration of the temple as well as the Father consecrating the Son. He's been set apart. He's been dedicated by the Father. He's been sent out in, into the world. And the Jewish leaders at this time were celebrating this particular event in history. And there's also, just briefly, um, for what it's worth... This passage may also be some proof that Jesus at least recognized on some level a man-made festival that uh, had been 
created and was not a part of Scripture. And then John says it was winter. There are some would say that there's more to just the temperature or the season of the year with regard to that. It's a very dark time in the hearts and lives of these Jewish leaders. It's a very dark time in the sense that this is the end of Jesus' public ministry at the end of this passage today. The next time he'll deal with the Jewish leaders is when? Palm Sunday. We've got a lot of John left before we get to Palm Sunday, so don't worry. So first we see that Jesus declares who he is. And not only declares who he is, he declares why they don't believe in him. It's true. They, you know, they're at this feast and Jesus is walking and maybe teaching at the colonnade of Solomon and The Jews gather and sort of surround him. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he could have, over the months and years, just every time he saw them, said, I am the Messiah. I am God. He could have said that over and over and over. But if he would have done that, would have demanded more and more works from him. Don't you think? I'm God. I'm the Messiah. They would have just demanded, okay, well, show us this or do this for us. But the works weren't important. That what they wanted to catch him on was blasphemy. So it was his words that were important. His works meant nothing even though they revealed that his words were true. That's pretty confusing. This is how I wrote it out. It's even confusing when I wrote it out. If he, had, uh, if, if he had said he was the Messiah, he would have demanded more and more works. But they were trying to catch him in blasphemy, so it was his words that were important. His works meant nothing, even though they revealed that his words he had used were true. That's why there was so much strife. My words have been upheld by my works. But no matter how convincing those miracles... You think about that, feeding the 5,000, calming the storm... Uh, what all have we been through? <laughs> healing the lame man, healing the blind man, calling himself the good shepherd, calling himself the door, and on and on and on. All those things. Unbelief is pretty irrational when confronted with the light of truth, isn't it? You think about that little child that comes out of your kitchen with icing all over his face. And you say, did you get into the cake? And he says, no, I didn't do that. See how irrational that is? It's the same thing here. Unbelief is irrational when confronted in the light of truth. Man chooses not to believe and you got truth staring you right in the face. And so he says, but you do not believe because you're not a part of my flock. They do not believe him. They choose not to hear and believe because they don't want to hear and believe. And they choose not to believe because also they can't believe. But they're still accountable for their inability because they happily agree with their inability. And so he moves into, when he says flock, he's moving into a reintroduction of that good shepherd teaching that Pastor Greg spent the last couple of weeks on. So we'll just refresh. We're not going to spend any time on this to speak of. He pointed out that they were not of his sheep 
Therefore, they could not believe. It's a beautiful description of the church, isn't it? Sheep. Wonderful description, you bunch of sheep. First, he says they hear his voice. Means they hear his word. Um, and they respond to it. You see, the, 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 those who are lost, the unsaved, have little interest in the, in the Bible, in the Word of God. True sheep live in the Word. You want to know who a true sheep is? Then you, that's somebody you know who spends time in the Word. They hear His voice. Secondly, they know Christ and are known by Christ. We've seen that in verse 14 and in verse 27. And they know him and he knows them so that they won't follow any false shepherd. Church members who run from religious system to religious system or from cult to cult or even church hoppers are, 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 are revealing in some sense that they're not true sheep because they're looking for something else besides the one and only shepherd. Uh, Leon Morris shares that contrast. He says, for them, those who are not his, life is simply a succession of haphazard happenings with no meaning and no pattern. For Christ's sheep, there is always the thought of the good shepherd who gave his life for them and constantly leads them into the places where they should go. His voice gives meaning to all of life. Third thing, they follow Christ. That speaks of obedience. No one has the, a right to claim to be one of Christ's sheep if they're living in willful, persistent disobedience and, and refuse to do anything about it, refuse to repent. No one has a right to claim to be one of his sheep if you're living in willful disobedience, if you're living in persistent disobedience. And just as there are false shepherds, and you know, you know false shepherds, just as there are false shepherds, there are goats who try to pass themselves off as sheep. And one day... So sad. One day they will stand before Christ and he will say, I never knew you. And lastly, these sheep have eternal life. They've been given eternal life and they are secure. Verse 28 and 29 declare that wonderful security we have in Christ. That eternal life that we've been given. Not not a life that we can have as long as we don't sin. No, an eternal life that we've been given and we are secure in. We are in Christ's hand. We are in the Father's hand. He says, you're in my hand. You're in the Father's hand. Sort of a double blessing for those who are his sheep. And that expression, my sheep, points to this close connection that exists between Christ and the church. We are, we are a gift to Christ from the Father. We are His sheep because He has purchased us by His blood. We are His sheep because He has called us to himself before the foundation of the world. And we are his sheep because we said, yes, I will follow you. That willful act to follow him as Lord and Savior. So what can explain the ignorance of these people who are standing around, they gathered around him there and Solomon's colonnade and so many people listening to him. Well, we explain the ignorance because they don't belong 
to his flock. He tells us that. It's not just that they, his own sheep hear his voice, he knows him, and that they follow him. But it's that those who are not his sheep don't hear his voice. Don't know him. And therefore, don't follow him. Neither Jesus nor John means to reduce or take away our moral responsibility to follow Jesus Christ. That they are not of his sheep is no excuse. It's not only no excuse, that they're not of his sheep indicts them. J.C. Ryle says it this way. Not being Christ's sheep was not the cause of the unbelief of the Jews, but their unbelief was the evidence that they were not Christ's sheep. Unbelief is a terrible disease. Unbelief is a terrible disease. Do you believe? If your answer is no, pray as that man did in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make that your prayer today. Many people struggle with this issue of eternal security. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Then the next verse, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Pastor Greg talked about this last week. People have that fear of losing your salvation. We use that pithy little term, what's saved, always saved. R.C. Sproul has a better way of saying that particular term. He said, once in grace, always in grace. The bottom line is if you have it, you never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. Why? Because that's what the New Testament teaches. That's why. We believe in perseverance of the saints. We believe in the security of the believer. Did we just make that up? No, throughout Scripture, that's taught. Actually, I'm not crazy about that term, perseverance of the saints. I'd rather say perseverance of Christ. Because perseverance of the saints might lead me to believe that I'm able to persevere. Listen, if it was left up to me, I would fall away. If it was left up to me, I would lose my salvation. But it's not left up to me. Jesus promised here and and many other places his sheep are secure. Nobody, nothing can snatch them out of his hand. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? R.C. Sproul also paraphrased this. He says, every one of my sheep is going to have eternal life. They will never perish. I'm going to see to it. I give them eternal life and no body will snatch them out of my hand. What a great promise. Isn't that wonderful? That almost makes Baptists say amen. It's one of the precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in this eternal life doesn't depend upon my feeble hold on him but it depends on his firm grip of me his hand not my hand does away with all the attempts all the attempts by those who would believe that salvation can be lost And there's another aspect of this I just want to throw in. To be safe and never die is one thing. But to feel safe is quite another thing.
Many believers are safe and don't recognize it and live their lives in fear. They don't feel safe. You can feel safe. You are a true believer. You can feel safe. And feelings are dishonest. And we can't base our faith on our feelings. To live life in fear, losing your salvation is not necessary. Saving integrity of Jesus Christ is at stake. Can Jesus save and keep me safe? Yes, he can. Philippians 1, 6. I'm sure of this thing that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. Augustus Top Lady wrote many great hymns, one being Rock of Ages. But he wrote this as well. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. By the way, that's where the band gets their name. Yet I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. This verse teaches us not that believers will be saved from all earthly disasters too. You already know that, right? Doesn't mean you'll be safe from all earthly disasters. But that you will be saved and you will continue to be saved no matter what earthly disaster comes your way. And so consider the great truths that we've seen about the Good Shepherd throughout these last few weeks. Do you notice that the Good Shepherd has a loving relationship with his sheep? He died for his sheep. He has a loving relationship with them. He has a living relationship with his sheep because he, he cares for his sheep. He also has a lasting relationship with his sheep because not one of them will be lost. Secondly, we see Jesus' unity. He declares his unity uh, with the Father. I and the Father are one. Verse 30. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It's like a common thing. He, John throws in again. He, they pick up stones again to, to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you how many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He makes a statement that 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 frankly startles them, I and the Father are one, gives them more reason to oppose him. They're asking and they want words to be able to indict him. And they're finally getting some words that matter all the miracles. And it was a plain answer for them. I and the Father are one. A clear statement about his deity the clearest statement about his deity that you'll find in Scripture. This was even stronger than the statement he made back in John 6 when he said, I came down from heaven. Or back in John chapter 8 when he said, I existed before Abraham ever lived. This is even stronger than those. And that word, I and the Father are one, does not suggest that the Father and the Son are identical persons means they're one in essence. Let me try to explain this quickly. The Father is God. The Son is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. He's speaking about unity, not identity. He's not, a, he's not affirming that He and the Father are the same person. They are two persons, two persons of the Trinity. 
Instead, he's saying that they have the closest possible identity of purpose. Jesus' will is identical to the Father's will, especially regarding the salvation of his sheep. And yet, identity of wills involves identity of nature. So, they have the same, the ident, they, they identify regarding will. They are one in will, but they are also one in nature. For both are God. And the wonderful thing about this one verse, I and the Father are one, it, it debunks two heresies that we've seen throughout church history. I and my Father debunks Sabaeanism. That's that's an anti-Trinity doctrine in old forms of Christianity and still exists some today. That's sort of a Jesus-only doctrine. There is no Trinity. They are all one. They're just given different names even if that's the case. So he says, I am my father. He distinguishes that they are two different persons. And so he debunks Sabellianism before it even takes place. And then when he says, are one, there was a guy named Arius back in the fourth century. Uh, who, and also, we, we see that doctrine, Arianism today as well, and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. And that is that Jesus isn't equal to God. Jesus is, is submissive to God in a, in a way where he's not equal to God. It's what we call Arianism, but it's also what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons also believe. That Jesus is subservient to the Father. And so in that statement, I and my father debunks one heresy and our one debunks another heresy. Opponents of the deity of Jesus say that the oneness that Jesus had with the father was only only in a unity of purpose and only in a unity of mission. But that misses the point. We never argue that the Bible teaches that the Father and the Son are the same person. They are one God, but they're distinct in person. You got that? I feel like Pastor Greg now. (laughs) And secondly, and this is the most obvious point, that even the true unity of purpose and mission, let's say between a husband and a wife, the true unity of purpose and mission between a a husband and wife or a father and son exist only because they are totally human beings, right? There cannot be um, commonality or, or, or unity of purpose and mission between me and my dog because we're not humans. Together, both of us are not humans. <laughs> There can be unity of purpose between me and my wife, but there cannot be between me and my dog, right? But you know what? The difference in me and my dog is not nearly as great as the difference in God and a human. And if Jesus were mere human, that difference would be so great. He would be a liar. I and the Father are one. He has to be divine. There's no other way. And these Jews got it. Throughout church history, a lot of people didn't get what he said here. But these Jews got it. How do we know they got it? They pick up stones and get ready to kill him for blasphemy. God made himself man. These Jewish authorities accused Jesus of being being a man who made himself God. You see that? Verse 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. They're just standing around throwing up stones, you know. 
It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You just missed the point. God made himself man. It's not that man is making himself God. They accuse Jesus of making himself God. And so they get the whole thing completely backwards. And so that Jesus' question here is penetrating condemnation to them. And there are broader, circumstance, broader consequences for all of this today. Because what Jesus is actually saying here is that there, the many good works I showed you, and he's talking to you too. Many good works that I've showed you from the Father, and they're recorded in Scripture. What wonderful work did I perform that you don't believe in? What teaching? What did I teach that you don't believe in? What act of compassion did I commit that you don't believe in? What personal claim did I make about myself that you don't believe in? You must answer those questions. Then he explains from Scripture. Verse 34, is it not written in your law? And we we might... um, you think of the law as the Pentateuch, but he's dealing with Psalm here, the, the Psalms here. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came in Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, he could have just said, yes, I'm the Son of God. He could have said it over and over and over. But that would have been an insufficient explanation of his relationship with the Father. Vital relationship he has with the Father. They would not get the picture then either. So Jesus resorts to what? The inerrant word of God. In Jesus' case, there were probably other options. But in your case, it's always good that you resort to the inerrant word of God. So it's important we understand a little bit about rabbinic discussions back in those days. He immediately goes to their Bible, their word, the Old Testament, in your law, in this case, the Psalms. And he refers to Psalm 82. Let's look at that. Psalm 82, 1 through 8. Well, we'll skip a couple of verses. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. Notice the little g. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted. And he lists on and on things that they are to do. I said, you are God's. Son of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm 82 speaks of God as the true judge and men who've been appointed as judges who are failing to provide what God has called them to provide, God calls them gods as well. God's little g. Not divinity. And so Jesus is not taking the statement, you are gods, applying it to all humanity, to all believers. It's a metaphor. 
And Jesus takes them back to where Scripture... And this is not the only place. There's a couple places in Exodus where, where God's leaders, judges, are called gods by God. He is comparing them to the failed judges... To his work, the failed judges that he's talking to right now, to his own works and to God himself. He's saying if God gives these unjust gods that are being spoke of in, in Psalm 82, If God has given them the title gods, then why is it with all my works, everything that I've said, all my miracles, why would my calling myself son of God be such a stretch for you? Since the inerrant Bible, and this is, the, this is a great statement on the inerrancy of Scripture. Since the inerrant Bible called their judges gods, they could not logically accuse him of blasphemy by calling himself God's son. Since he was under divine orders, he's been consecrated, he's been set apart in his own God's mission, he's been sent out into the world. Leon Morris explains this far better than I could. If the word God could be used of people who are no more than judges, how much more could it be used of one with greater dignity, greater importance and significance than any mere judge, one who the Father sanctified and sent into the world? He, Jesus, is not setting himself on a level with men, but setting himself apart from them. And notice how he sets this in the form of have a, a, a question that calls for an answer that we can reflect on whether we're a Christian or not. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blasphemed because I, I said I'm the Son of God? There are only two possibilities for you here today. Jesus Christ is the saving Son of God from heaven who is to be believed. Or he's not the saving son of God from heaven, and he's a pretender. It's really the only two choices. But then you've got to consider what, what, what about his works and what about his words. And so he says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. So while the, the, these Jewish leaders really didn't want to deal with their... His works, Jesus forced their hand. He was insistent that the works be brought to the front. He demanded that they recognize his works as the works of his father. As he had declared over and over and over and over and over. He stands in front of these angry judges who are called gods by God's word with stones in their hands. And the evidence is that there is a long catalog of works that Jesus has performed. And those works have been witnessed by multitudes and multitudes of people and every single one of his works has the mark of heavenly power on the work. There's supernatural wonders that only God could have performed. The conclusion to the question of the deity of Jesus Christ is undeniable. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true.
and many believed in him. Tried to arrest him. He escaped, left the area completely. He didn't return to Jerusalem until Palm Sunday. A less prejudiced group of people went to where he was. Could have been as many as 20 miles away from Jerusalem where he stayed. And it says, and many came to him. Would you walk 20 miles to hear Jesus? Left the big city. And they realized that Jesus fulfills John's proclamation. No, John's dead already. John the Baptist. They confessed their faith in him. Many believed in him. Thirsty souls, hungry souls, those he'd been preaching to, those he'd been healing, those, uh, those, those he'd been teaching. Blind sheep confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. Long after John the Baptist is dead, his influence lives on. We've talked about him. We've read, we've read about him already in the service today. And this is the last mention of John the Baptist in the Bible. And it's high praise. High praise of him. Since it confirms that what he said about Jesus was true. J.C. Ryle says, We need not doubt that very many Jews, both here and elsewhere, were secretly convinced of our Lord's Messiahship, and after his resurrection came forward and confessed their faith and were baptized. Seems highly probable that this accounts for the great number converted at once on the day of Pentecost and at other times. The way had been prepared in their hearts long before by our Lord's own preaching, though at the time they had not the courage to avow it. The good that is done by preaching is not always seen immediately. Our Lord sowed, his apostles reaped all over Palestine. Have you responded to the call throughout John 10, throughout this entire chapter, the, the great declarations that he's made of himself? He says he's the door. You enter in that door by faith so that you might be saved. He says in this chapter that he's the good shepherd. Have you heard the voice of the shepherd? He says, when he calls, his sheep hear his voice. Have you heard the voice of the shepherd? Trusted him. He laid down his life for you. He's the son of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He gives you eternal life. You've given yourself to him. Because there's a warning back a couple of chapters ago in John chapter 8, verse 24. When Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. And here's the warning. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Don't let that happen. Come to him today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song. I encourage you to respond to the word. If you have questions or you need somebody to pray with you, Pastor Greg or others will be in the back. Simply respond to the truth of God's word this day. Father,
We pray that you would take your word. Move us, Lord. Change us. Encourage us. Guide us. May we submit our lives to you wholly. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but you hold tomorrow in your hands. You hold your people, their salvation in your hands. We rest upon that. So give us boldness, Lord, as we move to you, as we walk with you, as we submit our lives to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.